And it was the most honest and the most brutal anyone had ever been with me. And I talked to him. I, I remember getting it in an email. And then I went to him after class and I said, hey, <laughs> got your email. And he like looked at me so seriously. And he, and he said, look, Tommy, if you decide not to try and to keep halfing, half-assing it like this and really just phoning it in, you're going to be fine. You're going to live just fine. You're going to do whatever you want to do and you're going to make it. But you could do so much more if you just commit, if you go all in. And then he just like kind of shut up and walked away. <laughs> and it like, it rattled me so hard. Like I was, I was shaking. I just, maybe people are just, you know, generally very nice and not always too direct, but this guy like shook me down to my foundation. I'm Jim Huffman, and this is If I Was Starting Today, a collection of conversations about half-baked startup ideas, growth tactics, and stories from founders, including my own journey as a business owner. All of the content is centered around one question. What would you do if you were starting today? In today's episode, I interview my friend Tommy Griffith, the CEO of ClickMinded. He went from Airbnb to building a high six-figure business while working, wait for it, one day a week. Plus, he's done it all remotely from places like Thailand and Hawaii. Yes, I know it's annoying. In this episode, we discuss his journey from Airbnb to Bootstrap founder, the power of saying no, his meetup hack that catapulted his business, being his pants in Thailand, how to decide if you should be a startup employee with stock options versus founding something on your own and not taking funding. He gives some half-baked ideas, and then at the end, he talks about how one college professor put him in his place and, in Tommy's words, rattled him to his core to, to get his act in order. I hope you really enjoy this episode with Tommy Griffith. Tommy, would you please introduce yourself? Jim! Yeah, thanks for having me on. Uh, my, name is, <laughs> my name is Tommy Griffith. I am a digital marketing guy been doing search engine optimization for about 10 years. I previously ran SEO at PayPal and Airbnb, and now I run ClickMinded, which is a digital marketing training course for marketers and entrepreneurs. Now, that was very articulate, Tommy. Thank you so much for that. <laughs> you, you were way too humble with that. Like, If I could classify it, it's like you ran the show for SEO with PayPal and Airbnb, and then you decided to go all in on your own thing. And here's actually, I, I'm getting ahead of myself, but like you've built yourself approaching a seven figure business and you've done it literally as almost like a two man operation with, with some help on the side. And for me, that's like super inspiring and in everything you've built today. I don't know if I'm taking some liberties, but for me, that as an outsider, that's what I see. Keep going, Jim. Keep going. Let the world know how. how <laughs> The fun thing about like watching your journey is because like you, you're ahead of me as far as you started earlier. And so for someone like me, I'm like, I have my own venture, but I'm always trying to get advice. And you've been super helpful. Like, shoot, like whenever COVID was happening and we lost half our business, I was like, oh, this, this isn't great. I should probably maybe get some advice on this. And so you were kind enough. We, we got on the call. I was like showing you my finances. I'm like, so what do you think? And that was actually a really like actually fun conversation that like inspired some ideas and helped us turn around. But it was just nice to have a sounding board and have another person who's going through stuff to be like, you know, you're not crazy. You know, I, I think you might be okay. Yeah, it's it's interesting you bring that up. And I, I remember, I mean, ClickMind have went through some real rough patches multiple times again and again, and more rough patches to come. And it, it's always interesting when you're looking for help. I mean, I remember there was, you know, consultants or people we try and pay to try and solve the problem or this and that, but it's always different from calling up a friend or calling up someone that's just like genuinely interested in it. Like it's, it's kind of more helpful to nerd out with someone who likes nerding out on that stuff than it is to like, you know, make it a, make it a transaction, so to speak. And I, I don't know, it's fun to, fun to kind of walk through some of that stuff with you. And I, I find it, I find myself doing similar stuff with with other people. I ask people for help that sort of are just genuinely interested in in the problem. It makes it more interesting to kind of see what they say. You know what I mean? No, totally. And I actually like I have three people I hit up. You're actually one of them, but they're very different. I have like this executive coach that has this engineering mind, worked at Microsoft, very well read. I have this uh, other guy, Rob Sobers. He's the CMO of a publicly traded company. 
and just like someone that's managing a company significantly bigger than mine. I love his advice. And then I have Tommy. And I have Tommy, who's the, the wild card, the other, like, <laughs> your ideas are always, like, so thoughtful and outside the box. It's really helpful. And so it's a, it's a pretty cool mix to hear three different perspectives when you're going through stuff. So, like, two, so two actual people and one, like, ebook clown running a lemonade stand, basically, is, is what yeah, you're exactly. talking Yeah, exactly. Makes Nailed a lot it. of sense. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah. And you are currently in Hawaii right now, and you're about to go on a road trip. And I am very jealous of you at times because you're very humble about it. But like, you've definitely kind of pulled off the work from anywhere, like lifestyle in, in a very cool way. I know there's like downsides to that, but I think looking back, the fact that you've kind of lived all over and you've been able to build this business, that, that, that's a pretty cool ride. And so I'm definitely like a lot of people like talk about it, but you just, you kind of have done it. So yeah, man, well, well done. I'm, I'm a little jealous. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. I wrote a, um, I wrote a post a little while ago, kind of summarizing everything that, that's happened. I lived in San Francisco for six years while I was doing SEO stuff at PayPal and Airbnb and built this side business, ClickMinded. It was kind of a side project at the time and it sort of grew and grew and grew and eventually eclipsed my salary. And in 2017, I ended up leaving Airbnb to go full time on it and kind of drank the Kool-Aid on that whole, you know, digital nomad, run around, travel and, and work sort of, sort of scene. And after a year or so, came back to the US and wrote a post talking about how the business did, all the mistakes I made, how it turns out real life isn't actually an Instagram feed. I, I can't believe that. I was sold a lie, Jim. <laughs> but, but yeah, it's been a mix of um, I mean, when you're running a remote business, remote staff, remote remote team, you open up a lot of opportunities, and you can either you know travel every week and go to a different country every week, or you can stay in one spot. And um, it's been it's been a lot of fun to be able to to do that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, we'll put the the blog post in the show notes, but it's pretty awesome. I mean, it was just, it was super honest too. Uh, I guess it was the URLs burning the boats, but there's one line in it. You're like, over the last two years, I doubled the revenue, hired a team, and then nearly drove the business to the ground while traveling through a dozen countries. I was robbed twice and only peed my pants once. Great <laughs> hook. I mean, that's how you keep people's attention. But like, so, so here's what I'm interested in. Like, you know, I'm interested in these inflection points where it's like you have a really cool job at Airbnb. And by the way, we're recording this. Airbnb just went public, so you can't see Tommy, but he is just dripping in diamonds from the IPO. So um, <laughs> went really well <laughs> for all, all parties involved. But like, what what I think is cool are these inflection points. Like, you have this job at Airbnb, and for whatever reason, you're like, I'm good. I'm gonna do my own thing. The other inflection point that I want to hit on is like anyone that turns a side hustle into a real business, there are some growing pains where it goes from this like startup to actually a business. And like you bringing in your partner, Eduardo, it was in a non-traditional way. And you and I both brought in co-founders like in fashions that are not traditional. Usually it's like you're like in your dorm room or you both have this brilliant idea. We're like, hey, we'll do it together, but not us. It's like we've been working on something, grinding for a few years. We're like, this is hard. I need help. So I'd love for you to hit on those kind of two inflection points, because for me, that's the interesting part is like the jumping off point. And then when you went all in and making this like a, a, a real business with, with the team. Yeah, I mean, that's a, it's a really good question. I think um, backing up a little bit, I think the one of the reasons why I you could argue either, you know, why did you leave Airbnb or why did you take so so long to leave? Because I my side project eclipsed my salary and I didn't end up leaving the company for probably another two years after that. So I had a side business that was taking up less time than my full-time job, but stayed at my full-time job. And so I think one of the reasons was I, I came out of the gates really hard in college and was just dead set on like starting a business, becoming an entrepreneur kind of thing. And I was just, I just failed so miserably again and again and again. <laughs> I just... Had so many different ideas, kept trying, kept failing. You know, I was one of these guys. I was absolutely blessed. My parents paid for university. I graduated, one of the few people who graduated with no debt. And I ended up putting myself into debt trying to start a business with a friend of mine. And it was just like 
not only do we do everything wrong, but I was just like so embarrassed by how much I'd messed up and, you know, I, I kind of, you know, blown, blown the lead. You know what I mean? I came out, I came out in a really advantageous position out of school. It ended up being, you know, I, I had to go through all that to, to not only to experience it, but also to learn what I do now, which is digital marketing. I learned a ton through it, but it was very painful, <laughs> very, very painful. And so when I did come back, you know, like tail between my legs, head down, that, that gift from Arrested Development where Michael Sarah is like has his head down and he's walking through the desert, like that was that, <laughs> that, was, that was me completely. And yeah, I went to the, the sort of corporate world at PayPal and switched over to Airbnb. And when I started this project, it was, you know, business attempt number 15. And when it finally started working, that was great. But the wounds were fresh. It was, I was very aware of how bad it can go, <laughs> you know? And so I think that inflection point that you're talking about, I think if you're doing the, you know, the Excel doc or the Google sheet doc, and you're saying, okay, I have this side project, it's earning a little bit of revenue. Where do I need to get it to, to quit my full-time job? Or I'm starting a side project. What do I need to get it to, to, to quit my full-time job? And that like decision calculus is, it's really easy if you hate your job. Right. It's like, it's like very straightforward. You just, you, you need to hit your expenses or whatever it is. And then off you go. But for me, it was different because I just, I liked my job. I was doing really interesting, tough work. I was getting more and more responsibility at Airbnb. I liked my colleagues. I was dating someone at the time. There's just a lot of like personal stuff. And it wasn't, I just wasn't ready. I wasn't ready to, to take off. When I finally did take off, I sort of accidentally done a bunch of things correctly, which was like, I built up enough experience. I built up enough product market fit, had enough, you know, reviews and testimonials and revenue that it actually made the, the likelihood of survival a lot easier. But I think, you know, kind of your meta question is like, what's, what was the actual catalyst? And the reality is there, there wasn't a very specific one. And I think that's probably a, a hard a weird answer for a lot of people. They want they want a number, a number in the spreadsheet to turn green, and then for them to go and quit their job. But the reality is, like life's messy. You know, you have obligations and friends and boyfriends and girlfriends and husbands and wives and whatever it is. And it was it was a lot messier than that. So once I finally did leave, it was it was great to get out of the city and try something new and travel around. But uh, there wasn't like a a real number or an exact moment where I had to go. It was just kind of felt like the right time. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. It's not like so black and white. It's like, all right, hit the number. It's time. It's more of almost like a, a feel. It's like, okay, it, it's the time, you know, lick your finger, put it up in the wind. It's like, all right, let's go. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Right. So you start the company, you're traveling, you're peeing your pants. It's going well. It's not going well. Like talk about like when you kind of went to that next level, because I definitely like, I wouldn't even call it, I was treading water. I was like not drowning for like a couple years. And then it's like, okay, let's make this a, a real business. And so I'm, I'm always interested when, because and taking a step back, the thing I've been super impressive with ClickMinded, you've, you've been very intentional about decisions and investments. You've been intentional about understanding your unit economics like how much it co how much search volume there is for people looking for your course your cost per acquisition and you all have been very thoughtful strategic and intentional in your strategy and and it's been working like you you did you've done a new type of model with webinars where you're able to do launches and you know hit six figures in 7 to 14 days kind of walk through like how you were able to have the conviction to make those investments and and make those decisions that led to growth yeah, so so ClickMind started as a live face-to-face -face SEO course. I was just doing SEO at PayPal, started teaching SEO to startups on the weekends, like a in-person, you know, all day Saturday, like startups would come to a co-working space and we would just kind of nerd out on on people's websites. I migrated, it was kind of right place, right time with this sort of online course revolution that we're in now. And this would have been back in 2012, maybe. And so sort of migrated on to an online platform, the Udemy, the course marketplace. And it grew and grew and grew from there. The, the goal, the big goal was to expand to like kind of a, a full suite of digital marketing courses. And so we ended up doing that. And a lot of it was yeah, calculated based on searcher intent. So there's so many different ways that you can kind of validate your idea before you commit. And it's particularly helpful if you have more at stake, if you're 
a little bit older or you're later in your career or, you know, you have a mortgage or kids or things like that. There's just a lot you can do to hedge a little bit, aka the exact opposite of what I did after I, I left university, which is like, this is a good idea. Come on, friend, let's put it all on a credit card and like and go nuts. And <laughs> just the the exact wrong way to go about it. So uh, we're pretty intentional about about a, a lot of that stuff now, but it was it was a long buildup to to get there. I kind of went guns blazing on the first few businesses and nothing ever really worked. And then hedged a lot by working full time at, at two fairly well-known companies. I was using the product I'd created at work. So, you know, engineers and data scientists and designers that were joining the SEO team at Airbnb, they would all use the product. Um, I was using all the branding from those two companies that were on it. I was growing the revenue. And so by the time I I left, I think my likelihood of survival was just a lot higher, you know, and then we, when we wanted to expand, we had this large email list. We had a number of people that had already paid us. There was, there was clearly demand for certain types of, of courses based on search volume. And before we even really committed to anything, we ended up doing a pre-sale saying, Hey, you know, all the click-minded SEO users who have enrolled um, over the last five years, here's this new offering we're going to do kind of Kickstarter style. Here's, here's what it's going to cost. Here's what you can get it for if you're willing to commit early. And we sort of got all these commitments and a six-figure pre-sale launch and then started the business. And it was very much a, a hedge in a lot of ways. It was kind of built on, on paranoia. My now co-founder, Eduardo, was, was working at Teachable at the time. And, and we designed it in that way where he didn't even join full-time until the pre-sale was successful. So we had kind of stacked a lot of these very unfair advantages. A lot of people think, oh, if I want to start a business, I need to quit my job. And then day one, like I open my laptop and I start like typing away, trying to figure out what to do. That's the exact wrong way to go about it. The way to go about it is to start now, to start slowly and build it up. And you sort of, you know, stack the deck as much in your favor as you, as you can. That's what we ended up doing. And we sort of get the commitments, look at the search volume, get the revenue commitments from people and build it a little bit more slowly when you validated the idea. And that, that ended up working for us. I couldn't agree more. I, I did the same thing with Growth Hit where I was consulting on the side and like was able to build up enough clients to where it would offset the salary and get them to commit for six months. I'm just like, it's funny because people are like, oh, you're a business owner. You're, you're all about taking risks. I'm like, not at all. I'm like, see me like play poker. Like I'm so conservative, you know? And really it's, Trying to minimize risk, especially when you're going into to the unknown. And I just, I get real nervous when people like, like I quit, I'm going to go all in on my own thing. It's like, well, what is that? Have you validated it? Because we're after working with so many startups, man, getting to that, we call it product market fit, getting to that level of traction. A lot of times it's not as easy as one thinks. A lot of times you never get there and it's, it's a grind. So yeah, that uh, I, I totally agree with that. Yeah. It's, it's funny you bring that up, Jim, because I, I like I love having these kind of talks with people around what your interpretation of risk is, what people's interpretation of risk is. Because I've heard that as well. Oh, you're, you're an entrepreneur. You roll the dice. You're insane, this and that. Yeah, I would agree. And actually, a good entrepreneur is often someone who's super conservative. And it's all like very calculated risks with very little downside and a ton of upside. And you're really just playing lottery tickets all day. <laughs> you know what I mean? The other argument I've heard too, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Dan Andrews, runs a Tropical MBA podcast and has an entrepreneurial, yeah, they've great, doing great stuff over there. But, but they've often said over the years that one of the riskiest things you could ever do is a 40 hour a week job tied to an employer. It's completely out of your control. It's completely to the whims of, you know, seasonality and market forces and who's the president and what's that country doing and whatever it is, you know, and, uh, that's an interesting take too. I think it's, is it uh, Naval Ravikant cites this guy all the time. Nassim Taleb, he says the, the two most addicting things in the world are heroin and a 40 hour a week salary or something like that. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's interesting the, the, the perspective on risk because I've heard that as well. Friends have told me I, I take all these risks and it's like, no, it's just a lot of small bets with a little, very little downside and a ton of upside. Yeah, I love that quote, by, by the way, that 
Wait, was it Naval or uh, Taleb that said that? Taleb said it, and Naval quotes him all the time saying it. <laughs> it's so true. And the older you get, the harder it is to break away from that because your salary gets bigger, your fixed costs get bigger, you get a family, you get a mortgage. And so it, it is harder to kind of to like get away from that. I mean, honestly, one of the benefits that I had to do my own thing was like the fact that I had a spouse who had insurance and stuff. You know what I mean? It's like, I probably would have waited a little bit longer for all that stuff. But um, no, man, that, that that's super well said. So tell me now, like with ClickMinded, you guys have like branched out to like basically everything in digital marketing. What's it looking like today with your process? Because one thing that's interesting is a lot of courses do the subscription model, right? You guys don't do that. You're like a one-time fixed cost, which is, I think, good from a buyer standpoint, your conversion rate's going to go up, but obviously you're, you're always having to drive in new traffic. You're in acquisition mode. Like how do you guys like maintain the current level? Then obviously like continue to hit the, the growth that you've, you've done. Yeah. I mean, this is, I feel like we have this debate weekly <laughs> in the business, like in Slack and stuff like this. This is the big issue with lifetime values and monthly recurring revenue and stuff like that. So, so yeah, we're an online course. We're a suite of seven online courses. It's about, man, I think we're up to 78 hours of content now. Wow. With seven, seven world-class teachers. Well, six world-class teachers and me and Jim Huffman teaching the, our sales funnel course. <laughs> All right. Check him out today. Yeah. We played with this a lot. And, uh, you know, like everyone, I'll state the obvious, everyone knows the dream is, is MRR. The dream is monthly recurring revenue or annual recurring revenue. How can you get that? one-time fixed costs on user acquisition, keep your churn low, and the graph goes up. That's that's the dream, right? But the reality was this is, you know, we have, there's other people sort of doing what we do and there's other similar products that, that do this. There is a little bit of a, a lifestyle choice in there as well. There's so many things we could be doing. There's so much revenue opportunity for us, but a lot of them don't fit within our process. We get you know, two to five consulting requests a week. And we say no to all of them or send them to friends or things like that. We get requests all the time for, you know, managed communities, private communities, pay $100 a month to get, you know, some private Slack or Facebook group. The reality is we like to do a bunch of work up front and sort of launch the product and then work on growing it and optimizing it and, and fixing it. And we found that there's a handful of things outside of SaaS and where you're sort of keeping the engineering maintenance going and that's, that's always going to be happening. There's a lot of online courses that they sort of accidentally become media companies. And that's a very different business, right? Because you're just constantly, you're co sort of constantly obligated to perform, right? Now, we, when, with our offer, we offer lifetime access to all of our courses. We update when necessary. All of our users get those for, for free. And that's an obligation we have, but it's a lot less of an obligation than answering every Facebook comment, you know, coming up with an email for the week, doing, you know, doing the upselling the user to consultancy offer and then doing a bunch of the, the work for them. And so we are definitely leaving revenue on the table, but we are incredibly efficient. We're in, we're an extremely high margin business because we just do a couple things. And when people ask for those other things, we just say no. We just kind of relentlessly say no again and again and again and send them to another place. It's not because we don't love them. It's not because the, the revenue wouldn't be nice, but it's because I think we would be mediocre at it. We found this, this handful of things that we're good at and we think we can corner it and keep doing it and, and be the best at it. And if we, if we branch out, we're just too small that we would be mediocre in a number of other things. So I think it's worth considering regardless of what your side project is or sort of what you're thinking about starting. In the early days, I'm actually not recommending this. I recommend you try everything, you say yes to everything, you do a lot of stupid stuff to get going. But once you find that secret sauce or something where you're sort of, you have a natural advantage at, I recommend dropping the other things and, and hammering that that one idea. You know what I mean? This hits way too close to home because I say yes to way too much <laughs> stuff. I get shiny object syndrome all the time. I'm like, oh, we could do that, do that, do that. But I mean, as our 
agency growth that has focused as we've narrowed down we've built up skill sets where we can be like the best at something but when we try to do everything you just disappoint people but it's like it's so hard because great opportunities in my career came because i said yes to everything but you, you bring up a good point there has to come like a switch where it almost goes to no and if it's like what is the quote if it's not a hell yes it's a no and it has to like absolutely align with what your goals are and what you're great at. And that kind of goes back to you being very intentional because I've seen you say no. Like I literally have a board seat because you said no to it. You're like, nope, too busy. Uh, go to, go ask Jim though. Even like <laughs> podcast, you're like, honestly, I'm not doing any podcast for three months, but absolutely I'll do this one with you. Um, the thing that impresses me is like, I haven't made those no decisions. You know what I mean? What I'm saying no to. And maybe it's easy. It's like, what are your priorities? What do you say yes to? And everything else is a no. Like, is that how you think about it? Damn. No one ever asked me this. This is a great question. <laughs> this is a great question. These are hard-hitting questions, Tommy. You know, that's that. <laughs> those softballs. This is some, you know, elite-level journalism you got over here. I mean, this is, you should be up for a... What is it? A Pulitzer? Is that what it's called? <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's coming. It's coming. It's coming. So, yeah, this is a great point. And I'm, I'm built the exact same way. I mean, I'm the most ADD person in the world. Maybe a little bit less so recently, but growing up and as a kid and in my early 20s, could not sit in my chair. Just could not, you know, and very interested in everything. And to be frank, I think especially when you're young, that's an advantage, that's an advantage. I having so you know, I have a buddy of mine. <laughs> I don't want to throw him under the bus too much, but he's like so unbelievably focused and obsessed and in love with insurance <laughs> from the age of eighteen. Like for whatever reason, this incredibly boring topic and whatever, and that's what he does now. And but he's had this one sole focus, like probably because of his dad or some sort of like adult influence as a kid. I think he hooked onto the wrong thing too early. I, I think he didn't do enough exploring, so to speak. You know what I mean? And I think that's an edge case. Most people aren't like that. I think what most people do is they get ADD, they look around at a lot of stuff, but they never focus on one thing. So yeah, I would say having that say yes to everything, be a little ADD, be willing to do stuff that doesn't make a ton of sense or has no obvious financial motive for you, just say yes to it. But um once you find that thing, it's really, really, really important to relentlessly and brutally say no to to everything else. And I think part of part of why I do that, and I'm not even trying to be like fake humble, it's because I'm really bad at most stuff. <laughs> I, I really am. I found this one particular thing I'm good at, which is this weird mix of teaching and entertaining and, and teaching digital marketing and doing all the things we need to do to, to grow our business. And it's this bizarre matrix where I'm, I'm right in the middle of it. And I just happen to be good at all these particular things and just incredibly mediocre at, at, at everything else. And so, yeah, how you go about finding that, how you go about finding that moment in time where you start to say no, I have no idea. Absolutely clueless. But for me, it was the real turning point. ClickMind, it didn't start right. It was like, I've, I, I launched it and the next day I dropped everything else. Not at all. I mean, there were many other side projects that sort of existed alongside of it. And I thought I would drop ClickBind at four and it just out survived them. So um, how I go about doing it, I don't know. I guess my only recommendation is to be bad at everything else. <laughs> yeah, or even just having that self-awareness to know what you're bad at or like, is this fruitful? Is it like aligned with what I care about or what my goal is? Because that's one thing I found because I'm like, I've been doing like some stuff for some other organizations and it's super time consuming, like, like for this thing with LinkedIn and not to throw them under the bus, but it's just like, what is the ROI going to be on this? Is this really what, what I want to do? So that, that's one of my things coming up is like, what brings me energy? What doesn't, what sucks the energy out? And like, am, is my time going to the, the things that I like and the things that are aligned with like what I care about and my goals? So but anyway, that, that's, that's my, uh, my own thing I'm trying to figure out. Yeah, I, I think just one last thing on that before, you, before we move on. I, I think one thing a lot of people miss, especially if you are thoughtful and careful and you're good at planning and you're good at like, doing all the stuff we sort of talked about, validating the idea before you take the jump. One thing that a lot of people miss, and the reason why they miss is because it's hard to measure, is your own interest. 
in the thing. We do all this work around, you know, trying to launch a product or trying to validate the idea, but we don't take stock of how much we want to work on it, <laughs> you know? And the reality is if you try and be objective, I love, I love you brought up self-awareness. I think it's, I think the, the single easiest indicator of whether or not someone's going to be good at something, successful at something, a good friend, a good like partner, whatever it is, is just self-awareness. It's just like the one, the one trait. But I think if you were able to measure it, you'd be way better, way better off in terms of measuring your own interests. For whatever reason, we don't do it. When you're just getting something going, if you try and be objective and more self-aware about it, you zoom out, you're like a little engine. You're like a little car battery and you are being plugged into this business. And if, you know, I'm not even trying to be hippie and crunchy and like doing yoga on top of a mountain or anything like that, but like you, you really do need to like be pulled by this, to be motivated by this, to, to be willing to jump out of bed on a, on a Saturday morning and work on this thing and to feel some level of interest or calling or Zen or whatever, whatever you want to call it. But like, you're a little ball of energy and a battery and you're going to get plugged into this business. And to not consider that is outrageous. It's ridiculous. It's stupid. And for whatever reason, no one does it. And so even if it's a, a worse opportunity with, with fewer dollars and more unclear goals and all that, if you're more interested in it, I'm taking that one every time. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Cause then it's not work. Then it's something you enjoy. It, it's sad though. Like I've been guilty of that. Like my business partner and I, we were looking at like, Oh, should we do this partnership deal where we'd like own part of this company and like we could really test all the things we want to test. And then he asked a question that kind of like floored me. And I, I was like, why didn't I think of this? He goes, well, we need to ask ourselves, do we want to work on this for the next four years? And, and he's younger than me and it annoys me how much wiser he, wiser he is than me sometimes. <laughs> and I was like, wow, I was like, that is absolutely the right question. But I was, I was literally thinking like an ant uh, in like hours and days as far as the next steps. Interesting. So like the whole like premise of this podcast, like if you were starting today, so like you've built ClickMinded, you're, you're selling digital products. It's like s extremely efficient. You've got a killer team. You've been able to create like repeatable and scalable like sales and customer acquisition, but like obviously that didn't happen like on day one. So if you if you were starting today, like what are some of the key things you would want to do or you would get in place? And it, it could be for ClickMinded or for any course or, or digital product. Yeah. So this is a great question. So man, I made so many mistakes in the early days, but I can talk about some of the things I sort of did accidentally correct that I think are still applicable today in, in other forms. And uh, please, please mention, by the way, sorry to interrupt, please mention your meetup hack. I feel like that was great <laughs> for initial traction. But yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear any of just kind of cliff notes. Yeah, yeah. So I think the, the very, you know, I sort of got this idea to do the SEO training course. And the very first thing I did was, you know, of course, I tried to move up my site up in the rankings for, at the time, the, the term San Francisco SEO training. As most people know, SEO takes a little bit of time and I was too impatient. So I was doing the SEO things and kind of waiting for rankings to go up. And my first user acquisition idea was to print out flyers. And so I printed out a few thousand flyers. I took a day off of work. I went around, it was super cold in San Francisco. I went around with a roll of duct tape and I posted like 3,000 something flyers. <laughs> can, we, can we pause that like for a digital marketing course that you're doing like offline print advertising? Yeah, I just love yeah that. pal. That's exactly <laughs> right. So it's smart. So as, it's local. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, you kind of gave away the lead here, but not a huge surprise. This, this was a terrible idea <laughs> and it didn't work. I took a day off work. I, I posted these things up all over the city. Halfway through, I was like, wait a minute. I was doing this like when I was 16 years old, trying to mow people's lawns. Like this is the same, <laughs> this is the same strategy. So that was stupid. That was, that was real dumb. And so my next move was like, okay, well, I'll try a meetup group, not because I knew it would work, but because I knew it ha couldn't be worse than my last idea. That was, <laughs> that was like my starting point. Meetup ended up being a, an, an incredibly important decision for me because it's, it's a really great way to build a backdoor email list very, very quickly. So I ended up setting up the San Francisco SEO meetup in 2012. At the time, it was probably $15. I set one up as an organizer. 
meetup uh, during the account creation process, meetup emails everyone in your city that, that has a similar interest. So I launched the group and meetup emails everyone who's already listed in their profile that they're interested in SEO and digital marketing and growth and user acquisition and stuff. And so for $15 in less than three days, I had 100 people in San Francisco interested in digital marketing. I ended up holding one meetup, the list grew to about 200 people. And then I emailed that group of 200 people and said, I'm hosting an SEO course, come by, you know, be the, be the first users, this and that. $15, less than three days. And that was sort of the, the beginning of everything. So my advice now is not necessarily to use Meetup. Meetup still is underrated. I still think you can do exactly what I did now, even you know, almost 10 years later. Even in the pandemic era, I think it's still applicable. They're doing online meetups. You could probably do something similar. But my recommendation isn't necessarily to use Meetup. My recommendation is to be a parasite, to be like a barnacle on larger platforms. Your users are in other places. SEO is is that it's it's sort of like you know parasitic barnacle type type uh, type stuff but it but it's hard and it's competitive and there's a lot of other platforms that you can sort of pull users out of with intention and the point the key here is intention so people hear that and the first thing they say is oh okay instagram because i love instagram and i'm good at instagram and this and that it's not intentional enough those are networks and those are attention sucking sort of things that just sort of have everybody but a meetup group of people interested in digital marketing in San Francisco is incredibly specific, right? And so your users are out there and they're usually on some of these platforms. So if you're just starting today, I highly, highly recommend, you know, using some of these platforms to either validate your idea or find your first users. Uh, maybe it's Craigslist, maybe it's Facebook Marketplace, maybe it's Facebook Groups, Maybe it's um, you know some type of course marketplace, or maybe you're targeting business owners of a particular type of business, and and you simply use Yelp to find them. I can guarantee you, your users are nicely categorized on someone's platform somewhere, and it makes a lot of sense to to start there first. You know what I mean? And by the way, I, maybe I stole that from you because I actually did meet up. Maybe that was two years ago, and it still worked. I got like 250 emails from that just in the Seattle area. So that, that's awesome advice. And your point on Facebook groups, it's interesting because like I was pretty much like just not active on Facebook at all. But like in the past six to 12 months, like I'm in like some Facebook groups that are really good. Like the trends group is quite strong. There are some really good ones. I, I, I totally agree with that. Yeah, I think um, I think a lot of those platforms, people just they think they need to start from scratch. And Usually the problem is, I actually find this all the time, if you're having issues sort of finding your first users, the problem is very likely that you're not desperate enough. <laughs> I, was, I started a meetup group not because I knew it would be a good idea. It was because I was desperate. I was absolutely desperate. And so the, the better way to go about this is to sort of act like you're, you know, a feral animal trapped in the corner, lashing out, trying to survive. You know, that's the, that's the way to go about it. And when you, when you have, when you have that mindset, you're gonna do whatever it takes. You're gonna join the Facebook group. You're gonna make, make a meetup happen. You're gonna sort of use these other platforms that, that make it easy on you. And that's, that's sort of how I ended up there. You know what I mean? That's a really good point. Cause if you, yeah, if you're not desperate, you won't put the, uh, the effort into it. You might not be as uh, aggressive that I, I really like that the way you put that no man that's that's super good a anything else any other thoughts as far as like you know what you wish you would have done better or things with, with click minded that you'd want to hit on yeah so i think barnacling on to other other sort of platforms is a really good idea the other thing too i think to keep in mind that i wish i had realized early on is understanding that there's no, there's kind of this myth out there of the perfect idea, especially for anyone who's listening now, you know, you subscribe to Jim's podcast and you're sort of listening, you're trying to figure out what you want to launch. What holds up a lot of people and it, it held up me for a while is thinking that, you know, that starting something like this is an invention or, or something new, or you have to have the shower thought where like the idea for the iPhone magically pops into your head. 
And the reality is uh, Derek Sivers has an incredible blog post about this. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. He's awesome. But uh, he, yeah, he's incredible. And he's got this post. It's it's a little, it's a few years old now, but it's uh, ideas are a multiplier on execution. I'm not sure if you've read it, but the, the concept is the kind of, noobs do this all the time. And I, I say this only because I did this all the time as a noob, which is you think you need this amazing idea, but um, ideas are just a multiplier on your execution. And he's got this great chart where he says like, okay, a bad idea is worth negative one. An okay idea is, is worth a multiple of five. A great idea is worth a multiple of 10. And an amazing idea is worth a multiple of 20. But then your execution is worth, no execution is worth $0.00. Bad execution is worth $5, you know, good execution is worth $1,000 and amazing execution is worth a million dollars. And the point is like a great, amazing idea with bad execution, just it isn't worth anything. And I, I see this all the time. People are trying to invent a product or launch a brand or just like do something really, really fancy waiting for that, that great idea. And the best side projects I have are so, I, I see are so incredibly simple to get going. I, I work in this coffee shop in Honolulu here and I saw there's like this little stand with a bunch of business cards and brochures and stuff like that. And I saw this one, I tweeted it out a little while ago, it, the coffee shop near a university and this kid just created these little postcards and it just says, it just literally says at the top, I do math problems. <laughs> and the subtitle, the subtitle is, you send me math problems, I do them. He didn't, and then a phone number, a phone number and I think an Instagram handle, didn't even have a website, didn't have, you know, a brand, a logo, an email address. It was a phone number and an Instagram username. And kids were picking it up and, and, and walking away with it. And it was, it was just a great example of an average idea with really good execution. And I, I grounding back to your point, I did this wrong. I was really all about getting way too fancy way early on. I was thinking I needed this amazing idea. My initial idea was <laughs> take down grad school. And even though I have many strong opinions about that, and I, I haven't necessarily given that up <laughs> yet, I have not given that up yet, absolutely not. But there's, it's an incredibly dumb to, to start with that idea, right? Like a way, what ended up being the right move for me was relentlessly focusing on execution, with a very mediocre sort of idea. And my very mediocre idea was get an intern, rent a camera for a day, film a very grainy, low quality video of me teaching SEO at a free conference room at a coffee shop in San Francisco. That was my very mediocre idea, okay execution. And that ended up turning into what's now nearly a seven figure business. So if I could have gone back in time, it would be really focused on speed and execution in the very beginning with your sort of half-baked idea because that that perfect idea is, is a complete myth. Oh my God, so good. And by the way, yeah, Derek Severs, he also has that book, Anything You Want, which is really good. But oh man, that that is such a good point. And it's so easy to like, let me work on my idea. You're in your Google Doc, you're in your Evernote, you're like working on the perfect logo or the website, whatever dumb thing that really doesn't matter at that early stage. It's like have a bias towards action, get it done, get it shipped. Yeah, man, that's, wow, that was very, very well said. I don't want to give you too much credit, but that was very nice. I do want to get to like half-baked ideas, but I just, I can't resist. So we were talking even before we started recording, like you and I, like you obviously were at Airbnb and you could have stayed there and rode that even longer. I was at a startup where I was like employee 29 and then it got to 200. And there was a point where we're like, wow, this thing is going to be really special. It is now at 10 employees, I believe. So maybe it was a good thing I got out. But you have to make this decision of, okay, I'm going to be an employee and I'm going to make a, a bet that these things called stock options are going to have a great return down the road. And so again, you um, being part of Airbnb right now, that's super exciting. But like you also went down this path of entrepreneurship and not like VC backed, but where it's self-funded, where it's bootstrapped. Like, those are two totally different paths. You know, it's like, for me, it was kind of a no brainer to go do my own thing. But as I see like situations, like really smart people I know at Amazon, at Airbnb, their employees, and they're getting, you know, options, they're getting equity. I'm kind of like, well, wow, that's interesting. That's actually maybe a safer path 
I mean, definitely is a safer path, right? But I don't know. I'd, I'd love your thoughts on those two paths because you definitely kind of went down both, but you're clearly down one right now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so this is—it's super weird to talk about this because the the whole the whole Airbnb thing is such was such a long time coming for me, and it it, it just happened. I actually haven't even really talked to anyone too much about this, so it's cool. It's cool you're asking about it. So. And obviously, this is not financial or legal advice, blah, blah, blah. If you took financial or legal advice from me, you'd be the dumbest person on earth. So this is, do not listen to any of this. What do you have to say? For entertainment purposes only or something like that? I don't know. <laughs> but Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I have some strong opinions about this now. You know, I worked at Airbnb for four years. The company just went public. So the should I start a business or should I join a company thing, like kind of agnostic of, of, of options and equity and all that, that's, that's fairly well debated on the internet and wherever else. You have the security of a job and stability versus the tons of upside of entrepreneurship. I won't really talk about that. That's kind of well debated. The part that I see less debated is do you start a company? Do you join a, a company really early? When do you join? That kind of stuff. I think... To me, it's very clear that starting a business is obviously, we're starting a startup, let's say venture, venture backed and all that, is obviously very risky, but has a ton of upside. What seems to be incredibly risky and have almost no upside, just to be super frank, is like employee number one to employee number 30 or so, or maybe 50 or a hundred. I don't know, but there's just, there's this incredible drop off. And there's been a ton of posts on hacker news and a bunch of people that left Y Combinator. There's just this incredible drop off in upside between founder and employee number one, when you're talking about the venture, the venture world. Right. And, and so not only is there a drop off in upside, but just, you know, the standard trope startups are hard. Most startups fail. And, and so you, if you do actually get the lottery ticket, it turns out it's not nearly as big as it, as it, as it could have been. Now, what's so interesting for what happened with me and, and what I'm realizing now that a number of engineers at the company seem to have found as well, and this is talking about pure f- sort of financial incentives, like I very likely would have stayed at Airbnb outside of this just because it was a very complex, tough, interesting problem with very cool people. And they were really amazing to the team and all that. It was just a, a good place to be. But from a pure financial incentives perspective, what I found, and I'm very curious to see if people start writing about this more, because I haven't seen many people talk about it. There's this weird middle ground where it can look like a company's going to do really well. And it's a little, and it's, it's kind of less risky. When, when I joined Airbnb, I was, I was probably around 100 employees, maybe a little bit less than 100 employees. But like, it really was not that risky to join Airbnb. It was 2013. You know, Airbnb was like probably a billion dollar or so company, maybe a little bit less. There was 100 something employees. It was, you know, there were like TechCrunch articles about it that were like, you know, this is the coolest office in the city. And like, it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't a no name five person company working on enterprise software in a WeWork. It was not like that risky, but it ended up. And I, and I remember thinking I was granted a bunch of, of stock in it. And I was thinking like, oh, well, this probably won't matter that much because I, I joined too late. Right. That was the thing. And that was wrong. <laughs> that was wrong. But so I think it's going to be very interesting to see if, People who they say, okay, I'm going to forsake entrepreneurship. I don't want to do it at all. I just want to play the startup lottery game. My bias is the game is going to be played in finding these companies that look closer to a sure thing at that kind of like 50 to 200 employee sort of level. And we, I saw a bunch of engineers do this. They would they do one year, one year at Twitter, one year at Square, one year at Airbnb, one year at Pinterest. And then like a couple of years later, like IPO, 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 IPO. But, but joining, like when they joined, wasn't risky. I mean, they were still getting a great salary and a 401k and someone was covering lunch. That's not, that's not risky. You know what I mean? So yeah, long story short, and I'm, I'm just rambling here. And I, this really is a half-baked idea, but founding a company... The, the upsides and downsides are very clear. 
joining a company very, very, very early, I think is mostly downside and not a ton of upside, although of course there's exceptions. But in terms of the venture back sort of world, world and Silicon Valley world, I think what's going to start happening is people are going to be finding, it's like that moment just before the rocket takes off. It's like pretty well baked in. Most of that downside risk is gone and you're still, you're still sort of getting a ton of the possible upside if it, if it goes nuts. You know what I mean? I really like how you're laying it out because I, I totally agree. Like obviously the founder, the financial incentives are, are very clear. But when there is that huge drop off with those first one to 100, I mean, you're still getting a nice slice of the equity pie, but nowhere at that founder level. But the risk level, the risk profile is the same as the, the founder. But if you can come in after like that C round of funding or whatever stage that is, it has been de-risked to a certain point. It's at growth stage. It's got the money behind it. And as you advance in your career and you're more senior, you can be this hired gun that comes in where you actually get a really nice pack, equity package that maybe someone that's more junior would get only if they join very early. But it's like you know, trying to like model out those scenarios. It's super interesting. But then it's also like the other thing is like, what actually do you like doing? You know what I mean? Because it's like, it's kind of fun having your own company. And like, let's let's just see what happens. Let's just do this. This is like your own path you're charting. And it's not like, oh, I don't have to report to somebody and do stand-ups with everybody. But no, man, I think that was super well said. Yeah. And, and that's a really good point. And I kind of said that in the beginning, we're talking about just the financial incentives. The, are, the vast majority of people like should not be organizing their life purely on financial incentives. That is a recipe for complete misery, right? So it's just, we're talking about like just the financial incentives in in isolation. And like you said, yeah, we are leaving a ton of cash on the table at ClickMinded in order to do things really well and do fewer of them and like, you know, live our lives a little bit, a little bit more. But, but yeah, if it was just purely optimizing for dollars, having ran SEO at PayPal and Airbnb, I could probably go run SEO at, you know, a very mediocre online, online college that pays really well and puts money in the bank. And I'd wake up trying to kill myself every day. Right. (laughs) So like there's that, that like, uh, that decision calculus never really goes away. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, for sure. And feel bad for everybody that goes to what they think is a sure thing. And then if it becomes a WeWork or something, it can be quote, quite a bummer. I feel bad taking jabs at them. They've been a great office space for us. So my apologies. I want to get on just two more things. So one, like, as we kind of go to the last part, I'm always interested in, like, you're extremely well read. You always have your finger the pulse of things going on. Like, I know you have random ideas that pop into your head, and clearly you're saying no to them. But, like, what are some half-baked startup ideas that you have? And I was going to tease them up for you, because if I'm you, you have this skill set in... A lot of things, but definitely in SEO and building funnels and really knowing how to get traffic and then convert it. And like the lead gen space, so lead gen is lead generation. Like it's insane companies that are out there that all they do is they're really good at SEO and SEM, search engine marketing, and they're driving a lot of leads. And this is literally for like law firms, for pest control companies, local services. And they're like, you know, eight, nine, eight, or I guess eight figure businesses. I'm also like obsessed with the idea of productized services. I know like me as an agency owner, every agency owner like dreams of having a SaaS product, but uh, doesn't know how to make a product. But I'd be interested, like what's what's going on in, in Tommy's head? What are things you're thinking about? Yeah, uh, I mean, always constant, never ending, doesn't ever turn off. It's, so it's fun to, to talk about this stuff. So a couple of things we've been thinking about quite often. One is all sorts of opportunities around local SEO. It's still underutilized. And for people who need to understand the distinction, if you go to Google and you type in a search term that isn't related to your area, you just get regular Google results. What time is the Super Bowl? When is, what's the first day of spring, right? But if you type in, you know, auto auto repair mechanic near me, you get the local pack, which is a map near you and localized results. This is not regular SEO query in Google's primary index. You're essentially setting up, you have companies that have set up profiles under Google My Business and have optimized. There are so many massive markets that are under-optimized for businesses that aren't on Google My Business yet and 
sort of markets that represent opportunities. The way that people always go about this is they say, I'm going to start an agency or I'm going to start a consultancy. But the reality is there's, there's lots of little pockets where you could probably do this yourself. I don't know if you know um, Sweaty Startups. Oh, yeah. You heard of that guy? Very good. Yeah. But he loves this, this kind of stuff. And it's like, okay, you know, 2,800 people a month are typing in lawn care services rally North Carolina or whatever it is. And if you think about, you can map a lot of this stuff out. Like you can, um, what's the, the average value of a home in Raleigh, North Carolina? And what's the average square footage and what's the average income and how many people are typing this in a month? And what if I had a 5% conversion rate? You can sort of put a dollar amount on on a market and then go after it. What if you created a lead generation site specifically for lawn care in 25 cities that were under-optimized. Another one I thought was very interesting is personal organizing, not made services, personal organizing in the wake of this, you're familiar with uh, Marie Kondo, uh, the magical art of oh, yeah. tidying up. Yeah. And a bunch of- Oh, it's on the Netflix queue. Absolutely. It, it's on yeah. Netflix as well. It is becoming massively popular and it's, you're even able to, if, if you're good at this and you're passionate about this- People are even open to Zoom consultations because it turns out that tidying up is actually a lot more to do with psychology and kind of a you know psychiatry session rather than just moving your your, your photos around and, and cleaning out your garage. People looking into personal organizing in the top 20 markets that are underserved, I think could be fascinating either through Legion or Zoom calls, which would actually unlock you. You know, if you were a centralized personal organizing business that was doing Zoom consultations. I don't think it would be that unreasonable to rank in, you know, Detroit and Oklahoma City and LA, et cetera, et cetera. So that could be. Oh, let me jump in. I love that. I love that idea. And we could even spin it where it's also tied to everyone's working from home. It's the remote world now. It's like let's start with your office. You know, let, let's uh, let's let's personally organize your office, and then we we enter the bedroom, then we enter the kitchen, and we just take over the whole household. I'm into it. Right. That's a great idea. That's a great idea. What's another one? Admin, yeah, especially with this sort of remote work thing, we're seeing a number of opportunities to sort of barnacle onto other platforms. So we are using Slack for everything. We don't do phone calls anymore. Everything happens through Slack. Uh, we're working now on building tools within Slack. So sort of things that, that bolt onto other tools, we sign up for third-party SaaS services but using Slack as kind of a command line, this is you know, very specific to us, but anyone who does most of their team stuff in Slack might benefit from this, using Slack as a command line. So um, one thing we're thinking through, Eduardo, my co-founder, is, has already built for us internally, and we might turn it into a product, is an annotations app. So you make a change on the site, you change copy, you change the color of a button, or change something on the back end or add a link. Uh, one Slack command, right? Slash, slash annotate, and then whatever you did, and that'll an add an. I love this idea. Add an annotation. <laughs> I love this idea. We literally still use Google Analytics just for annotations because that's like what we know. But we live in Slack, and if there was some kind of archive or timeline of it, that would be amazing. And it's so easy to do that because honestly, half the time you forget to put in Google Analytics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly why we built it. So everyone annotates all the time, and it's only because Adorno built this, this annotation app that sort of removes the friction, you know? So that's an interesting one. And then built onto that as well, like we have, we have other platform problems. So like we are an online course. We're built on a third-party learning management system called Teachable, but we like, we want, it makes a ton of sense to use a learning management system like Teachable or Thinkific or Podia if you're an online course. But there's often customizations you want to do. You want to super admin to you know sell the universities or you want a super admin to sell 50 seats to to volvo or or goldman sachs or something like that and so we're thinking now about basically a bolt-on admin tool that sits on top of your learning management system so you can base so you can make super users for your customers someone can sign up and add additional seats for for their team kind of as they need to. They have a credit card on file and they can say, okay, I got a new employee. I want to add them. Oh, I, I, don't need to, I don't need to email click one. I can do it myself. We like to think a lot of sort of solving our own problems first. Obviously, it's way easier. You're the customer. You know what your own problems are. 
the upside is if you make it and it's useful for you and then it's not a good business, you still have a, a useful tool. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, so you're kind of scratching your own itch. It's like if this is something we want, we build it, hey, we actually like this. You validate it with the market of one, and then you can put it out there. And like from an agency perspective, I love marketing products when I actually use it. It's so much easier to write copy, design a funnel, and think through like the, the problem you're solving. I, I think that's a really good framework. For sure. Yeah, that's the way we do it. Definitely. Okay, that's awesome. So, Tommy, thank you for throwing those half-baked ideas out. I actually think that annotation app is, is quite a good idea. So let me know when that, that happens because we like that's actually a problem that we have like with a lot of clients too because we would you need to build one for agencies so we could keep track of all of our clients so that would be pretty sweet that's interesting okay let's let's talk after we we'll get we'll get you set up today on it <laughs> <laughs> there we go it's, it's two hundred ninety nine a month that's right <laughs> well, the, so the very last question like like you're always like super accommodating and, and helpful like with, with stuff I have going on like what's the nicest thing someone has done for you when it comes to like the business world oh man you know what it wasn't it was close to professionally but it's it was so important to me that I'll just say it in university I had it's actually during my study abroad program I had a teacher I had an instructor there was like this optional thing you could sign up for we had all these classes and they say hey we have this optional thing you can sign up, or sign up for where if you want like kind of more critical feedback on what you're doing you can do it and you, you don't have to but it's some sort of like if you're if you want to prepare yourself more for the working world or whatever and I just sort of half-heartedly signed up for it and I had this teacher I really liked a lot I was doing okay in the class I thought it was okay I was getting like a b in it or a b minus or something and I always got I always did okay in school but kind of did the bare minimum and would participate in things I enjoyed, but kind of zone out on things I didn't. And I had this teacher come in and he just gave me these really brutal, scathing remarks and basically wrote in this very formal way, like I was, I was completely half-assing everything I was doing. <laughs> and it was the most honest and the most brutal anyone had ever been with me. And I talked to him, I, I remember getting it in an email and then I went to him after class and I said, hey... Got your email, and he and he like looked at me so seriously, and he and he said, "Look, Tommy, if you decide not to try and to keep halfing half-assing it like this, and really just phoning it in, you're gonna be fine. You're gonna live just fine. You're gonna do whatever you want to do, and you're gonna make it. But you could do so much more if you just commit, if you go all in, and and then he just like kind of shut up and walked away, <laughs> and it like." It rattled me so hard. Like I was, I was shaking. I just, maybe people are just, you know, generally very nice and not always too direct, but this guy like shook me down to my foundation. And ever since that moment, I just, I just realized like it was, it was kind of up to me and it, and, uh, and I could, I could either half-ass it or not. And it was the meanest, nicest thing <laughs> anyone had ever done to me. And I find that I, um, I find that I, I do this now with people. And sometimes they don't ask for it, and it comes off the wrong way, and I get myself in trouble. I'm incredibly direct, and and part of the reason why is because it was so helpful for me, especially with Americans, especially with the guy was British. I don't know if that that changes anything, but uh, especially with no, Americans, it, yeah, it might yeah. change it, right? It's kind of our culture. You sort of want to smooth things over. I know you're you're from Oklahoma, and that's probably even more so there. In New England, we're a little bit more bitter and with the, with the winter and everything, right? But uh, but it's kind of cultural. Like you want to smooth things over, you want to be polite, and you just sort of you know genuinely friendly to people regardless of what you actually think and the reality is like you get down to the meat and potatoes when you're when you're direct and you're real and you're harsh and not in a mean-spirited way but in a in a in a helpful way and just there's just so many people it's just easier to bs it's just easier to to say you're great i'm great high fives you know pats all around and so yeah i think that's the nicest thing anyone ever did for me professionally, which was be very, very, very direct and real with me and tell me I was I was half-assing it and I should knock it off. Wow, that that's such a good story, by the way. That makes me not want to sugarcoat things sometimes because the thing that 
came across is that he actually like had good intentions giving you that because he didn't have to to tell you that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. He, he, he really didn't. And that's the thing is like, there's not a lot of upside to being a jerk to someone like that, to being very real, to being very direct. You, you often make them mad and sometimes you never see them again, but every now and then you get someone and it's happened a couple of times where, you know, I emailed him many years later and told him the story and he like, like, Throw back a very quick email, like, good to hear. <laughs> like, okay, cool. You changed my life, but thanks, bro. <laughs> but it's happened a couple of times in my life as well with, with friends and family and other people where, like, they got really mad at me. And then whether it's a, month, a week or a month or sometimes even a year later, I get an email or a call or whatever and just say, like, hey, man, thank you so much. Like, I realize now you're being really genuine and you were right. And thank you. You know, because if you mean it and you care about the person, it gets messy. It gets really messy. It's, it's easy to, to just smile and BS through people when you don't care about them. But, you know, when you really care about someone and their outcomes, you end up being a little bit direct with them. You know what I mean? Oh my God. So, and so I just, this reminded me of a story that happened that actually hit me the same way. I was a senior in college in at Kansas trying to get a job in New York on Wall Street in investment banking. So I'm just spraying and praying my resume and cover letter everywhere. So I'm literally pumping gas at a gas station. I get a phone call from New York. I'm like, this is it. It worked. I pick up the phone and I'm like, oh, yeah, J- Jim Huffman. And he's like, uh, hey, yeah, I got your Kevin and Rose. I'm like, really? And he's like, well, we're not hiring you. Just letting you know. And so me, I'm like, okay, like, why are you calling me? And he's like, I just want to, you know, this is a horrible cover letter. You've used the word I five times. You haven't said why you could help our firm, how you could help us. You never use the word you. He's like, hopefully that helps. Have a good day. And he hangs up. <laughs> he hung up on me. And, wow. I, and I was just like, wow. I was like, I was like so mad. I'm like, and, but then I thought about, I was like, okay, that's good advice. I was like, he's right. This is the world's worst, worst cover letter. And then like went <laughs> back and rewrote all of them. But it actually like then helped me, you know, how I did cover letters and eventually get a job. It was one of those, I was like, was that the meanest thing or the nicest thing anyone's ever done to me? But the fact that he like (laughs) out of his day to call me and do that, and he just kind of hung up. I was, uh, I actually like that guy. I need to figure out, I didn't even remember who it was or the firm. It was just such a blur, but I I just had to flash. Yeah. It was in, it was in New York. Is that what you said? Yeah. I was trying to get a job in New York and uh, he was at Of course it was in New York. (laughs) (laughs) oh man wow that's 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 fascinating yeah it's true it's it's true for whatever reason be it cultural or or whatever it's just it's a lot easier to just sort of everything is great and everything is nice and you just you don't grow that way you you grow you you grow by getting your ass kicked let's be serious you know all right i'm gonna start being a hard ass now it's all on (laughs) Oh yeah, I just I just ruined your daughter's childhood, didn't I? Shoot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sorry. yeah. yeah. Mow the lawn, girls. You get your job at age six. Let's go. <laughs> this isn't a charity. They're already walking all over. Oh man, I'm such a softy. So well Tommy, <laughs> I think I'm way too much of your time. You're trying to get out of Honolulu to do your road trip and, and go blow all your IPO earnings. But um one last thing. Where can people get more Tommy? Where can they learn about ClickMinded? Anyone that's trying to launch something and is somewhat interested in SEO, where where can they find you? Yeah, so we have uh, we have seven digital marketing training courses and a, a bunch of free mini courses, cheat sheets, walkthroughs. Uh, we do webinars all the time and downloadable templates and guides. It's all free at ClickMinded.com. Awesome. Well, Tommy, dude, thank you so much. And uh, hopefully we'll get to talk to you again soon. Yeah, Jim, thanks for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to If I Was Starting Today. You can find more episodes at jimwhuffman.com.